version. But the very first version was a spoken word version by Vaughn. Okay, when he just, just would just say, you know, what's my name? Let it go, et cetera, et cetera. That was the very first version of Break for Love with a Spanish version and I believe an instrumental. Some months later, at Power Play Studios, Vaughn met Keith. But hang on, let me just, just ask this another question. Okay. Now, I remember we got this record on the blue jacket with the Grove Street with those three versions of four. And I don't remember that vocal mix. And then all of a sudden, a lot of us are playing the record and then you can't find the record nowhere. They pulled it. He may have stopped pressing it. Did something happen before the next part happened? Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I remember. You make me remember because I can remember going to Vinyl Mania, speaking to Charlie Capone. I remember it was clear. I got two copies. I'm playing the hell out of this thing. And all of a sudden, it's gone. Nobody knows anything about it. Yeah, that must have been that, that time. Okay, a a after Vaughn met Keith and they got together and they recorded the vocal version that everyone knows, right? The essential version. They had disagreements after that. Um, Keith didn't like the way Vaughn was promoting the record and say he didn't know what he was doing and, and you know, things that affect. And they just parted ways from then. That was probably 1980, 88, 89. Before the record even started to even have a life, they had parted. And um, all future pressings that Vaughn did would then say, written, produced, arranged, performed, mastered, et cetera, et cetera, by Vaughn, Mason. So that's probably what you're talking about. Yeah, because, bro, I remember that record was the original one that you spoke about, the one pre-Keith, was already being rocked by every DJ in the East Coast because the record was moving, like you said. 20,000 singles were sold. And that was a lot back then, but that was nothing to what it really sold in the end. Yeah, that's true. Okay. 20,000. People imagine 20. Now, mind you, 20,000 physical copies, everybody. You had 20,000 physical copies now, you'd have like a platinum hit in dance music, right? You'd be number one on the yeah. pop chart, everything. You'd be number one on the pop chart. Back then, it was like 20,000. We're like, they were like, that ain't nothing. We, and we laugh about that. But 20,000 back in the day was like, okay, 5,000 pieces to promote it, right? And 15,000 sales. Wow. Maybe we'll get a major to grab the record. So how yeah, did I cut you off before? So pre to you, us losing that record on the stores, you said Vaughn met at Power Play Keith. How did that happen? Who introduced who? Okay, now that part, I don't know. because I wasn't, Whatever you I, do know. I wasn't there, but I know that that's where they met. And Keith came down to East Orange and they recorded the vocal that you know now. Now, it gets more murky and dark who actually wrote what, okay? Because as I say now, on the record, it just says, written, arranged, produced, everything by Vaughn Mace. Keith says that he wrote some words. I believe he probably did. I believe between the two of them. I believe because I work with Keith, too. I know he can write and writes very well. So he must okay. have wrote something. He must have wrote something in that record. That's right, because you know what? I can never say... I know Vaughn for writing song lyrics. Everything else to do for record, yes. Drum program, maybe playing keyboards, you know, um, you know, things of that nature, but I've never seen him write down anything. Which Dale was usually writing a lot of the lyrics during that time. So I'm pretty sure that they both contribute to the song. Okay. And at that fallout, Vaughn just took everything. Okay, that so was the issue. You're not there. You're not there. So you really, you can only say what you think is possibly what happened. Right, but but like I said, between the two of them, those lyrics came about because they, they were the only two in the studio. Right, and that's where things just went left field and right field after that. You know, I couldn't tell you who did what, but you know, it was it was between those two. Well, I have to leave that with Vaughn and Keith. 
may more rest in peace. Of course, Keith is still going and he's doing his thing and he's a, you know, a very um, talented brother and he's a friend oh, of yeah. mine. And I can't I got nothing but good things to say. Yeah, about. I, I wish the best for Keith. You know what I mean? Every time he came over here, I would come and I would support him. I'd be there, you know? So it is what it is, you know? It's a shame that they fell out, but that was a permanent falling out, which I didn't know. And that, that fallout went to the end, you know? So what can I say? You know, me, I'd rather just kind of like have some type of, um, you know, um, meeting in the minds and letting things, you know, just, just be on a good vibe. You know what I mean? I wouldn't want to go that far, but you know what? They had their reasons and that's all I can say. Yeah, of course. Every, you know, I mean, look, we all have, we all have things that happen along the way with people and things, you know, it is what it is. You can't, you can't control every situation. You try to do the best you can. So moving along, of course, Keith goes on to do what he does. Vaughn does his thing. You keep going. So where do you leave from there? Um, from Break for Love times, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm living in London, and the record went on to be number 28 on the UK pop chart, um, number one on all the dance charts. It just seemed like it just stayed on number one. And then Vaughn got with Doug Lazy. And the first very thing was called Rage Presents Doug Lazy. So he did that. And they came over. Doug came over. He did a tour. So I started going out more, meeting different people. Um, I was in Black Market Records one day. You know, Black Market Records it used to be on the Arbley Street down there. And... Um, Stevie V was in there, the Avengers of Stevie V, the guy that did Dirty Cash. And we ran to each other, and I was just looking at um, records and things, whatever, and somebody told him that I, I was involved in Break for Love and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, hmm, if you got some time, whatever, maybe you know we can get together on the studio. So he has an SSL board up there in Bedford at his studio. I don't know if he still got it, but he had an SSL board. And we went up there and, and I worked on um, what would become his next single, uh, Jealousy. Played some keyboards on that. And had, had a good little run with Stevie because we actually, um, 1992, um, he took me to LA. We was out there for about six weeks recording some music and doing things like that. But back to the 90s, from, from Stevie V, um, Adamski, that's someone that I knew way before he even became Adamski. So I was getting um, invitations to go and work with people. Um, Lee John, Imagination, I wrote some songs for him. Uh, a song called Ooh Ah, which was more or less another sort of break for love type of song, but that's what he wanted. And I'm like, hey, I'm here to, to you know, do what you want to do. So I worked with him. Um, I met Byron in 1989 when 10 City came to the forum, the town and country then, yeah, to do that show. I met him then when I went backstage and met Byron and um, we just clicked just like that. We just clicked. And every time Byron would come over, I'd, I'd meet up with him and everything. And soon after, well, not soon after, probably a couple years after, a couple albums, 10 City albums, he was about to go solo on Nervous Records in New York and Manifesto Mercury in London. So um, I became music director for, for, for the band when we were going on Top of the Pops to do um, Get Up Everybody and Feel Mighty Real and things like that. And I remember, I remember Eddie Gordon was involved with that signing for Manifesto. Yes, he was. Because you know what? Eddie is the one who said, could Byron do a cover of Feel Mighty Real? And Byron did not want to do it, but he said, okay, you know, you want me to do this? Okay, I'll do it. And that became a top top 10 hit. Yeah, Eddie, Eddie was a good guy. Eddie had worked at every major label in London, I believe. And he had his network. You know, he ended up being doing a Radio One road show and all type of stuff. So, I really didn't like that time, but we go on top of the pops and MTV and things like that. And there was a guy named Luke Neville. Remember him? 
He was the look very clearly. Yes. He's an AR manager. Okay, so when Byron was going up in the office to do his AR meetings and things, I would hang out like in the radio room or hang out place, places. And I I would wear my my army fatigue pants with all the pockets every time we would go to the record company so I could stuff them up with CDs. I would come out there with like 50 CDs every time. Um, because the guy said, look, there's there's the there's the promo room right there. Help yourself. So I would do that. And then when we leave it, I say, well, here's what I got, Byron. You know, so whatever you want out of this, you know, just take what you want, and I'll take, you know, what's left. So Luke asked me one day. He says, I, I got a project or something, and I, I, I want to see if, if, if you might be can do it. And he says, Can you rap? I'm like, Nah, I can't rap. Definitely not me. Wrong guy there. Then he said, Well, look, well, can you try? And I was like, Yeah, okay, I'll try. I mean, you know, I, I know. I'm not no rapper, you know, but okay. So what it was, he had this artist called, um, um, what's it called? Loop the Loop. We had signed to him, right? And Loop the Loop was a guy, he did a lot of remixes, got done things for them. And they had this project, this song, and they had bought a paragraph from, from um, yeah, they bought a paragraph of this song from Stetsasonic called, Oh, I don't know what the song was called, but it was like Hazel and your voice is nasal. And, and I met this girl and she had money and, I, and she was so fly. I didn't know what she was so fly about. That record. I know you know that record. Okay, so they, Mercury bought. A Brother, pair. by the way, you know what hits me? Talking all that jazz. Okay, that's what it was. It's talking all that jazz. It's that record. I'm sitting there going, that's the one that was on Tommy Boy. I, it's got to be the same record, I'm thinking. Yeah, so they, they bought a paragraph. paragraph. Yeah, so How basically, I didn't even put um, it. I met this girl, her name was Hazel, her, her voice was suede, her dress was suede, her voice was nasal. She had money. I found her so fly for the love of me, I didn't know why, right? And they bought that, they bought that, and they put it together as a record, and then they got me to be in the video. And Top of the Pops, and I go around the country performing that record, right? So that became a top 15 record uh, in the country. And that was just because I was with Byron. That was the only reason, because I was there all the time. And Luke just said, well, uh, can you rap? You look like a rapper. Back then, my hair was like really long. And I used to get these people saying, is that Snoop Dogg? Snoop Dogg? No, it's not him. Definitely not him, you know? So um, that was really good. And then... I met quite a lot of other people over the years that I would come and do um, writing projects with. Um, Pevin Everett, when we, met, we did a song together. Um, I met Robin S. with Byron back in 2014 at, at some place. We did a song together called Be Thankful. Um, so I really got to work with a lot of people, but my first UK production. It was for this girl named Maureen. Maureen was from the group called Bomb the Bass, right? Say a little prayer. She went top 10 or top five or say a little prayer. So um, we met at Hippodrome Nightclub. And I said, well, hmm, would you be interested in doing some writing or at least trying some demos and things out? Because she was hot at the time. You know what I mean? She was like top 10. So uh, we went to the studio and we came up with a song called don't fight the music. And that came out on this indie label called Dance Yard. And then I wrote another song for her called Don't Hold Back. And then she got signed to Polydor Records. So those first songs that I co-wrote for her got her a deal at Polydor Records. And then she would come back with another monster hit, a cover of Sister Sledge, I'm Thinking of You. That was a big top 10 hit for her. So I worked with her. Um, over the years, and uh, Angie Brown, um, quite a lot of people I got to got got to work with um, on 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 the strength of just how popular Break for Love was, and um, writing and, and doing some things. You know, it was really like a life changing experience. And that's something that one record can do that without even being properly acknowledged 
what your accomplishments yeah. were. I was reckoning you didn't even like at one time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you're moving along. So you, in the 90s, you're with Fire and you're doing your stuff. You're involved as it keeps going. Where do you see yourself in this in this road now as, as things are unfolding? Because it's a really good time. Well, I and, left out somebody. I left out Martha Wash. I, I got to do a song on Martha Wash's first album. That first album that they awarded her after all that sort of um, CNC Music Factory stuff. The song called Hold On Part Two. Eric Robinson got me in on that project. You know, Eric Robinson's a guy who used to write some songs for Aretha uh, Franklin or whatever. So, you know, I, I forget some of the things that I've done. It hasn't been a whole lot, but, you know, you forget a little bit here and there. Um, in recent times, let's say the last um, three or four years or so, I've been working with Loose Ends. I, I, I knew. Carl Macintosh for like since 87. So um, yeah, I, I, I do writing and writing and co-producing with him. And um, I played in the band a few times. Yeah, like, like last year, the year before, I was in the band playing samples and keyboards and things like that. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. We got albums going to be coming out. Mm, I don't know when exactly, but basically that's the next thing that I'm really looking forward to as far as... Um, writing and, and producing. What made you stay in the UK for, you know, for, that, for that length of time? Um, because because there was nothing happening in Washington, really. And really, when I left, when I really left in 86, I was like, you know what? Uh, oof, all your friends are, are getting into, this, um, into this, this thing or whatever, right? And I was like, you know what? If you don't leave or something, you're gonna fall right into that to that thing. Because when they came to DC, you know what I mean. When they came, it hit on '86, right? And I mean, you know. So when, Murphy, when Nancy Reagan said, "Say no," <laughs> yeah, well, okay, everybody knows that whack. Yeah, they were saying all of that, and, and basically, I I saw that stuff way before it even became. 86, I'm telling the truth. I saw it a lot with some of the other people that um that that, that I just happened to, to get around. So I was like, wow. And I think it really got curious on my mind when Richard Pryor caught on fire. That's when I was really like, what, what, what is I was just so curious to what you can do and how you can catch yourself on fire. So anyway, moving along in 86, I just decided I'm going to go back to London because I'd been there with Gil in 85. We toured. And I said, I'm just going to take a chance, go back to London. Plus London is a vibrant music capital. It's probably the music capital of the world. I mean, any kind of music, you know, that you're into, there is a market for it in London. So I went on back to London and um, I was there for those six months because at that time you only get six months and you, then you got to leave, et cetera. So Inside that six months, I had met my future wife. I had um, started doing a few little things in the studio. And then when, when Gil came over, I joined the tour for the summer so I could make a little bit of money. Then I went back to the United States. And I'd be coming back and forth for a couple of years. And then I got married, I believe, in December 1988. I got married. so. Break for Love would hit then, you know, in that next year or next things, and, and that would catapult me. And then in 1990, to be specific, I did the last Rage record, which was called All for Love. Break for Love 1990. That was top 30 in the UK chart. And that came along really funny. It was really funny where that came along. I heard this guy, Sidney Youngblood, but his, his track called If Only I Could. And Only I Could, according to the Blues and Soul magazine, the Melody Maker, and the Enemy, it's just a heightened version of Break for Love. But it reached number three on the UK chart. So I was like, oh my gosh, these people. Plus there's another record called Quartz, Meltdown. There was, uh, there was Insomnia. There was a KLF mix. There was probably at least 10 other records that was made 
basically off of Break for Love, break the samples or something. So I went in the studio and I was like, man, I need to show these people, man, who, who, who really came, came from the source of where this came from. And I came up with this thing called All for Love. And I got this friend of mine, this guy named Rob Gordon, the secretary. He was really a bass player for Gil Scott Heron. I got him to do some rapping. And I got um, a session singer in London, Jadine Powers, Lady J. And I put the track together. Well, I didn't know what to do after that. So I sent it to Vaughn. I said, look, here's a demo of something I'm doing. Uh, you know, you know. And what he did, he played it over the phone to Champion back over here in London to Mel. He said, I want it. I want that record. I want it. So Vaughn said, look, I just got you a record deal, right? But what he didn't tell me is the record deal was for 10,000 pounds. But he was going to get 5000 because he presented it. Okay, I mean, you know. He became a 50% shareholder for presentation process. He did because he didn't okay, play enough. managers and, and agents that are listening, listen that carefully. What did he say? Because he showed the record, he gets a 50. That's called arm muscle. That's not even called management. I know, but that's that's what he did, okay? And, and me, okay, uh, I'd rather have half of something then they have a hundred percent of nothing and the demo is just sitting in my hand not doing nothing so i went along with Vaughn on most things that he did i just went along with it i just said okay i guess it's just, just i mean i guess this man did get me a deal you know um so we went to the studio and did the record and the record debuted at number 30 on the chart now mel at champion says we have to keep and put Vaughn's name on it because we don't want people to think that he's not in the group no more. So he added Vaughn's name to the writing credits, to the playing credits, to the production credits, to the everything. But he didn't have anything to do with that record other than he played it to a mail. And, and it went further because that record went top 30, as I said. So we had about 40 or 30 track dates to do around the UK, right? Can I, can I interject for a second? I need to interject. Is it possible that Mel did not come up with that from his own thinking process? That Vaughn said, because I know how people are in this game, may he rest in peace, but I'm going to just put this out there. Vaughn saw an opportunity to have another piece of a game that may further his career along. You know, because something's, something's bubbling. People don't like to lose a chance to get more shine, more work. Do you think is that what happened, or was it really Mel that came up with this idea? No, that could be true because you know what they've been wanting a um a, a um comeback answer to Break for Love, okay? And and Vaughn did try because there was um Lamia Razette ready for love. Remember that? Okay, and Champion signed oh, it. You mean how quick I blinked my eyes and it was gone? Yeah, but Champion signed that record and they didn't get, you know, they didn't, they didn't get anywhere. So I guess Vaughn probably did saw an opportunity that Champion wants this record. Okay, wow, it's a raised record. I haven't done anything on it, but shit, I'm raised. So uh, yeah, okay, you know, I, I got to have half of it. That probably is what happened. Okay, it is what it is, right? It was still going to further go my career. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just, I just want I would prefer to have that extra 5,000. But I, I, I believe, no, I believe that's just knowing that old timers game. I, I came up in that time and I, I know how those guys were. You want something to go forward? This is how it's going to be. You're it, like, it, it went further than that because. Go ahead. Tell us what. That I did for Vaughn that went to ZYX. I didn't get no publishing. And I, and I did write on some of them. So, I mean, that back then, you know, because you write there in New York and back there at that time, it was just like, that is how it goes. Dog you, and dog, baby. Dog and dog. Bitch. If you found somebody a record deal, you want half of it because you found it back then. So, what can you say? Brothers That's and sisters, children, get your pens and papers out. Listen to me carefully. 
There's people I knew that made the records and the one that found the deal got all credit and all the money. Okay. You know that too. Come on now. Yeah, that's happened as well. That's happened as well, but not to me, but that's happened well, as well. Well, not him, not you, but just want to let everybody know that stuff really went on back then. Well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That went on. You know what I mean? Like, I'm the one that's going to get the deal. And if I get the deal for you and you get your deal, I want. And otherwise, you're not going to get no deal. So, like, yeah. Like D-Train would say, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's what happened. So, okay, I, I, I went with that. And, okay, it, it worked out all right, you know. It worked out all right. What, what can I say? Um, it is what it is. Because I didn't know what to do with the record, right? And that was that was what I thought. Let me send it to him and see what he thinks. But we did some other records as well. Um, there was a girl named Pam Shelby. He signed her to Atlantic Records. And Vaughn also signed, I think it was called Homeboys Only to Atlantic Records. When, when he signed Doug Lazy and Let the Rhythm Pump and Let It Roll did so well, you know how labels are once you give them something they really like and it does something. Bring me everything. Bring me everything. They're ready to, yep. So those are two things that didn't happen, though. But Vaughn, Vaughn always said, take the money and run. And that's what he would do because he signed Break for Love to Champion first. A year later, when Sony Columbia wanted it, he signed it to them and didn't tell them that he already signed it for the world to Champion. And how did that go? It's still going. They still they still just just disputing over it. Are you serious? Tony and Champion are still disputing over that record today. Yes. And let's give everybody how many years is that argument going on? Well, tell you what, I think when Vaughn signed Break for Love, he signed it for his life because Champion still got their rights to that record. So is it what we call in, in, in the terminology perpetuity forever and ever and ever? Yep. Yep. And Sony comes and licenses the record from Grove Street again, which is Vaughn's label, right? Yeah. And he signed it to Mel a year earlier, champion. Yeah. And he got another check from Sony for sure. That's right. And we but also I'm sorry have I have amnesia. I don't remember that I signed it. With Mel and Champion, because I know Champion's deals. Champion's deal was that kind I of. Pay, I don't pay anybody. That's champ, Champion's deal is I don't pay anybody. That's right. Say that clear and loud, nice and slow. I don't pay anybody. That means Robin S., Todd Terry, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Salt and Pepper, JT and the Big Family, on Sybil, you know, on and on and on. That's how he made, and he made so much money. Me, me and Mel, though, we're fine. I still can walk in the champion to this day, and I go in there when I want to, because I'd rather stay cool with the label than to go ahead and just fight about something. But he did the same thing for All For Love. He didn't pay me anything. But I saw it, it was number 30, and I also saw it doing a couple of compilations. So I got a lawyer, and I sued him for about 40 or 50,000 pounds. Which he paid out. But Champion made... Why go back in the man's office? How do you go back in the man's office knowing that he's doing this? How do you do it? How do you look the other way? I mean, well, I live in London and I'm just like, I don't need to have any bad blood and, and have a thing. Like, okay, put it this way. If you say Keith Thompson in Champion Records, everything goes quiet. They're going to ask you to leave. If you say my name in Champion Records, hey, how you doing? Want to have coffee? Want to come in? Well, so I'd rather just at least be on a, on a good vibe because what's done is done. So I might as well just try to just make the best of it and um, just live and let live because there's no getting it back. And there's no need to carry a grudge, you know what I mean? Carrying hatred and carrying stuff like that, it's, it's not good for the soul. So just let it go. I can't understand. Okay. <laughs> I'm only laughing. I'm not laughing for you. This is not, I'm not laughing for you because everybody's gone through some hard times with this game. The list 
the hit list that you just mounded off, the names, how is Mel still breathing? You know what I'm saying? Like well, the, those hip-hop brothers and sisters in New York would come in back in the day, everybody. There's a story in New York. I don't know if it was Chung King or one of the studios where such and such walked in the room and just shot the board up. Next day, Universal had to send a check to John King to buy the board. That's how crazy stuff was. I'm shocked nobody walked in that room in Mel's office and took care of business. You know what I'm saying? Like that kind of hit list. No, no, nobody went in there. And back this time, even the other labels didn't like him. But I'm going to tell you what Mel did. His most ingenious thing that he did was, and well, but it's not it's just him. You got you, you to gotta look at Vaughn as well. Mel told Vaughn that when he signed the deal for Break for Love, he needs the publishing, too, to work the record. Vaughn just said, okay. But Mel sub-licensed that record to at least 50 other labels, which all done in excess of 100,000 copies, and all those publishing things reverted back to champ, and it never left. We have never gotten a pound royalty check from champion ever. So he's probably made a good five million just off of that one record. So so did he collect 100% of all of it? Yes. So what about the songwriters' rights that you normally get from the societies that they don't they don't get? Because there's always that piece, the 100% songwriters and BMI. Did that still go to the guys or not? Vaughn me, we never got any royalties from Break for Love. Not royalty. Music royalty one and publishing are two separate things. So I'm asking. He never got no publishing. Nothing. Got, nothing. Nothing. Now, I, I've gotten airplay and some other things through this organization called Palmra because um, um, back in the day in the Music Week magazines, they put in Break for Love and some things like that. And they said the lineup. And it said Vaughn Mason keyboards, Eric Dow keyboards, and Keith Thompson vocals. But when this society came out and they required proof that you are attached to a certain record, I had kept that article. And that is credible. It was in a music industry book. That's all you needed. That's so all you needed. that got me a slice of Break for Love, which I still get some money. Every six months or so, I get money. Obviously, get your money. Get your money. Obviously, though, it's not the publishing money, but I'd rather have something and and than nothing. And I was smart to get that. You're be kidding me! You're telling me Mel from Champion collects on the whole publishing. Nobody else gets anything. Yeah, and I try. I tried to get Vaughn to um, to sue Mel when Sidney Youngblood came out and everything. I said, look, Vaughn, there's a guy over here for a record. It's nothing but another version of Break for Love. He's number three on the pop chart. Sold, I don't know how many copies. I need you to say something to Mel so we can go to court and get some money. Well, Vaughn wasn't interested. He don't live in London. He was doing what he was doing, you know, in New York with Atlantic or whatever. And he just disregarded the whole thing. That could have been a paycheck for us for about 500,000 pounds, easily. Well, but what year was the Sydney, the Sydney Young Blood Records? Like 91, if I remember, right? Yeah. Okay, so to have a record in the top 10, in the 10 spot, pre-sale had to be that week in the top 10, at minimum. Top three. Pre-sale, 300,000 pre-sale. Top three, yes. Top three. So I'm saying 10. In the 10 area of 10 to 1, yeah, that's the kind of numbers you had to have pre-sale to be able. So you know how much money it is, everybody? You're talking, you're going to hit a gold record. The record went gold, I think, in that in um, in England, that city. Yeah. But you would have had a few million in publishing at the end of the game after it was all So and he didn't he, he didn't want to he didn't want to shocked Mel didn't realize John listen Johnny Walker was working with Mel. Johnny Walker was a DJ too. He did not hear that. Yeah I know Johnny Walker. I remember Johnny. Johnny used to be the AR guy. There's Johnny no went to Polydor. Yeah. Well 
at that time, I think John was working for Mel. I remember at that time, he must have been able to hear that record. Somebody must have told Mel, did you hear this record? Sounds like Break for Love. You know Mel would have jumped out of that seat looking to Sue right away. I couldn't get them to do anything. I was the one here. I couldn't get Vaughn to do anything, really. And I was like, wow, I'm sitting here watching this. And, you know, but hey, it is what it is. You know, what can I do? Children of the house music scene, this is like a slow car crash. You're watching the car crash happen and you want to go and you can't do nothing. Everybody's like, nobody's listening. It's like, are you stupid? I'm going to claim my credit out of it. So that's all I'm going to say. Damn right. Get your credit. Get your credit. What I say, my motto is, it's good to get the money. But one day that money will be spent. But the credit will last forever. That's how I look at it. No, you did. Look, here's the thing. How did that credit happen? Because pre to that, there's no mention of anybody else involved. Oh, I saw on the original credits, Vin Fraginals is mentioned, of course, Keith and that. that. How did this, how did that credit come in that music publication? Who, who, who verified that or, or who, or it just happened by somebody who was smart enough to realize you were involved? Well, I had I, I had to vocalize that I was involved, but basically though, it, it you know, you know how the game is. I'm saying basically, Mel he really had that he, he sealed that, believe me. But like I said, he did it with everybody, and then he came out and had a super group, what they call um, um, Faithless. Then he came out with Faithless, and they really done something. But like I said, I don't want to just have bad blood with anybody, you know, and and it's not going to change anything. I tried at the time, and at least I tried, you know, and Vaughn wasn't interested. He just wasn't interested. He he just couldn't see it. I saw it right away. I was like, man, I know there's some money right there. But who knows, though, if Mel didn't go after them. For all you know, he could have. That's right. And and got money and 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 kept it. Because he kept his mouth shut about Break for Love. So, I mean, you know. But it's all good. It is what it is. So with all this experience now and and knowledge that you know, where is it leading to you to today with this new game? Where are you at in your life with your music, working with others? Where do we find you? What's the story with today? Well, I mean, I predominantly just do things with with loose ends, like I was saying. Um, I do some DJ dates. You know, um, I still get some P- those live PA dates. I got a couple of them, a couple of them next month, right? A couple of those um, Break for Love, Jack the Groove track dates coming up. So, I mean, that's good for Christmas. You know what I mean? Extra money here and there. So that's really what I do for the most part. You know, um, I've I, I got a few of collaborations with people that I might have, but it's not like it was, you know, and I'm not as inspired as I used to be when you're doing things. And, and you, sh- you can probably understand that point once you sit in your studio and you take whatever it is, two days, two weeks, two months, your time, your, your, your creativity, your work, everything to do a track. And the track comes out and a label wants 50% of, of it from the top. And they want to take that out of, out of your money and put it on um, iTunes and everything. and and it's there for one minute, and it might be number one for one minute, and then it disappears into the ether. That's what I think, anyway. Because there's more music than there are ears to listen to it. So it's just not the same. If it was anywhere like it was before, I used to just always be trying to write something and do something and whatever, because I knew it was going to generate something. Back then, if you had a publishing deal, or yeah, a publishing deal with a, a label, record company, when you record that track for them and you finish it and everything, they would give you a percentage. They like, okay, here's what we're going to give you now and we'll see what's going to happen when it comes out. So either it comes out and it doesn't do anything, right? And you still got some money or it comes out and it does something and you get some more money. But in today's market, you put the record out. I don't know, you get a million hits on Spotify and you probably go buy yourself um, a nice meal. 
Well, you know, the difference from the old days was is that the music has become like a business card. It's a catalyst to the social media game. You know, um, if you're out performing, then you're using the music as a business card. You're not using it like the way we did it back in the way it was from the old setup where you built records and then you tour to support the releases. Now it's the opposite. You're living off the touring to put the releases out to feed the machine. Yeah. And that's why it's so crazy. It you know, a different thing now. Yeah. I see people complaining constantly. Damn, there's too many releases. Who the hell's quality controlling this stuff? That's yeah, you get about 10,000 records come out every month, don't it? Try again. 20,000. It's like a day. Oh, well, there you go. So you see? So, but you know what? The ones that are doing the real stuff, those stand out because they have their setups. They they work the records. They still know how to promote properly. Now well, it's just people they have their machine tuned to, to cut through a lot of the uh, a lot of the garbage. But they always say the more noise there is, you got to have something that that makes you go pulls that ear an earworm. You know, there's a, that hook. In this case, it's like you got to have everything fine tuned so that when you pop stuff out, it stands out in every way. Standing if you were somebody to start today, Eric, sorry, what would you? Yes, yeah, if somebody came to you, young young kid, you know, younger guy, said, "Dude, I want to come into this game." Actually, from Georgia and Alabama, kind of right around the border area. So the family vacation trips back down south were very frequent. But a week into the vacation, Ashley was forced uh -oh. to cut her trip short. <laughs> felt like she needed to get back from vacation because she had work that following week. Uh oh. I was saying is that was that everybody's going, what the hell was that? I know I thought somebody was, I thought somebody was going to get shot. I was like, oh well. The question again is let me, I don't know if you heard the question. If somebody younger came up to you and said, Hey man. Do you got any words of advice for me? Like, what can I do to make it in this game? What would you tell them now? Okay, well, I would tell them, first of all, whatever you do musically, you make sure that you've got all your rights, you know, the rights to who, who's the writer and, and, and everything tied up and, and, and organized before you even get it onto other people's ears and before you start doing things like that, because I mean, it, that's, it's very notorious out there like that. So you got to know the business before you even get the song together. You know what I mean? You got to have it registered with, I guess, whatever it is, ASCAP or BMI and, you know, have your composition registered to you before you even let anybody hear it, because it's so easy to play something for someone or to give them a copy and they can, make something just like that in another couple of days and claim it's theirs. So that's the first thing I would say is get your business sense about you, right? You know, your writers, your publishers, you know, keep that to yourself. And I know what Vaughn used to say when we used to be in a studio somewhere, he says, when you, when you go out of here, don't leave an echo, nothing that you would do, nothing. That's what he would always say. Very good words. Don't leave an echo. So he should say, he said, don't leave a sound of nothing we were doing in here. Nothing. Not a tape. Take the strip off the, the tape off the mixer, board, everything. When they come in here, they won't know what was going on. So basically, normalize everything back to zero. That's right. And he used to say, while I'm in the studio, though, while I'm in the studio, I'm the king shit though, while I'm in here. Let me ask you something. What's different about then to now with quality control? How did you know you guys are doing really good stuff opposed to like people who work in their bedrooms now and just releasing? What was that factor for you that you knew, wow, we're getting this right? Well, I think that a lot of it came down to Vaughn because the studio that a lot of those records were made on, it was made on a, um, an Akai MT-1212. I know you're familiar with that. That is like, um, like, like a, 
12 track um, recorder with the, with the mixing console, everything made into one. And it took the, um, I call them VCR tapes. It took a VCR tape to go in. So, I mean, it was in a studio, but essentially though, that was kind of like bedroom recording. If you think about it, you know, Vaughn just had some studio, some speakers. It was in a room, but that wasn't even, I had never seen anyone record music and like off of that, you know? Matter of fact, he's the only one that I've ever seen uh, making music with an Akai MT-1212. Now, what he used to do... Never seen anybody on my end, never. I never seen one. That's the only one I've ever seen in my life. So first of all, Vaughn went and just, I want that piece of equipment right there, okay? It's not a 24 track, but yes, okay. He was one of those things where I can can make it work for what I want to do. So after those 12 tracks were done, he would take it out and bounce those tracks to stereo through this thing called Sony PCM. Take the tape, put it back up into the machine, and then he had eight more tracks. And he would keep on doing it like that until he was finished. So in some regards, that was kind of like bedroom studio, or like you get your four track and you just keep bouncing and bouncing. But he was very good at the engineering. That's what it was. He was very good at the engineering and the sound. And he was very good at getting things out of you. You know what I mean? Like he was very good at that. Let the truth be told, he never played one note on Bounce Rock Skate Road, okay? Not one note did he play. He bought the tape and he paid for the studio. And again, when he left, he did not leave the echo. And he walked right to the record companies and he went to 10 record companies and nine of them turned him down. And Brunswick said yes. And that's how it went. I was wondering how that happened with that record, because there's not much story about that track, except that. Oh, we- yeah, well, John Freeman is the guy who organized the session for him at this studio called Arrest down in 14th and K in D.C. The studio's not there anymore. What happened was Vaughn read in the, in the business magazine that in 1979 or even 80, uh, every month, I think there was 300 or, or 30,000 roller skates being sold every month. So something like 30,000 roller skates were being sold every month in New York because of the roller skating thing. So Vaughn decided he wanted to make a record about roller skating. And he took the chic bass line and he went down to the studio and gave, gave those guys an idea. And they just sort of just got on with it, right? Vaughn took the tape and left. And when he went to the record company, he said, this is Vaughn Mason and crew. That was it. Now, he did learn to play bass later and whatever, but Vaughn has never been a a musician as as such, you know what I mean? But that's how that record came across, okay? John Freeman organized that for him. And John's friend was Jerome Bell, Who's, who's the lead vocalist on Bounce Rock. And all those were, were Washington, D.C. musicians that John knew that he pulled in to do a session on downtime with Vaughn. So at midnight, when the studio was shut, Vaughn gave him whatever he gave him, three, 400, whatever it was. They recorded that track. Vaughn said, thank you very much. And he left. Yo, man, hook me up, man. Come on, man. Yo, give me some time in the middle of the night. I'll come up in there. And that's what happened. I know how they. I remember how they spoke back then. Yo, man, make it happen. Make it happen. I give you a couple hundred bucks. Get me in there. Boom, 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 boom. Take the tape, and see you later. And that's what happened. And I mean, um, I don't know. Some of them people, it's reputed they didn't it's get paid. In goes gold, and everybody wants to be like, "Yo, I paid on that. I wrote that." Um, um, some people didn't get paid. Um, some people did. And the first check that Vaughn got was for $100,000. So back then, I think that's about a half a million today, you know, if not more. And um, back then there was some payola stuff, right? And he didn't pay anybody. 
you know, all, all the stations, how they work. I don't know how it exactly worked, but I do know that there was a thing called payola. And basically, once your record became really, really big for people paying it, they all, they, there were such things called slight kickbacks with them. Vaughn didn't do any of that. So when he came out with his next record called My Jamming Big Guitar, they didn't play it. And if he would have paid some money from the last one, that record probably would have played as well. So I learned something new then. That's what I was told, that he didn't pay the people that got the record out there for him. So when the next record came, it just... Yo, Baba, it's like, it's like this. It's like a check bounce. It went... Ka-dook, 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 ka-dook. Yeah. <laughs> record came out and went... Because that payola scheme, yo, records did not happen unless you played radio DJs in their pocket money to make that happen. It just didn't happen. Yep, so how would that happen on, on a phenomenon? He was supposed to still kick back some people. And got lucky. They said, yo, you got lucky first time. Now you ain't lucky this time. That's right. Give us some money for this one and we'll make this one happen. So, but you know. He was like, what? I ain't paying, I can imagine. I ain't paying SHIT. Oh, Vaughn, Vaughn didn't even pay the people who play on the record real good. So we know That's he wasn't going to pay the DJs. But you would have thought Burnswick would have taken care of that since it was it was on that label, right? The name Daniels, Jeffrey Daniels, uh, whatever the name was, Daniels. Nope, they didn't take care of nothing. I mean, they 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 were just as bad. Because you know, Bond said they didn't really pay him properly. But basically, you did you didn't do too bad. Damn boy, wow! You talk about like that was a massive hit. That bounce will rock. Number three. BLS started playing that record in New York. He couldn't stop hearing that record. Went nationwide. That's right. And you know what? Frankie he Clark, he, I think Frankie Crocker for that one. Frankie broke that record big time. He definitely probably made about a good, mm, a good half a million at least touring. Because I remember I would go out there with them. I wasn't playing, but basically I'd be there. I mean, everybody from the Commodores to Sugar Hill to Shaka Khan, to Rick James, to Prince, to everybody, he was on those shows while that record was hot. And what Vaughn used to do, he was a showman because he wasn't really playing. He really was, wasn't playing um, the record. He had this python snake, this real thick python snake. It was about 10 feet long, and he would get in the front of the stage with a snake, and he would open his mouth, and he would stick the snake kind of like as close to his mouth, and he would do things like that and whatever because he, was, he wasn't playing. You know, he wasn't playing, but he would just, uh, I guess, mime along the bass, you know. But uh, what can you say? He knew what he was doing then. And, I mean, you know, what can you say? You know what? You do what you do. I mean, again, you know, this, this was his show. Yeah, that was his show, and that's how it went, you know. And, and I was getting an education seeing what was going on and seeing how things happened, you know, between him and um, Gil and, and George Clinton and Palmer Funkadelic, I was getting um, uh, an on-the-job kind of training or kind of like play-as-you-go type of thing, you know? So, I mean, I, I, I would do it all again because those type of educations nowadays, you don't get them. No, but that kind of touring doesn't exist either, like that kind of you know, like I remember D Train telling me that was like, you know, that's not Chitlin Circuit. That's that's high end at that point. But when you were coming up, you and he he even said that to me. It was like the Chitlin Circuit where you're working it and you're learning, you're breaking your your chops in, and that was like he hit it. Went from I never did anything or now he's on the A level touring instantly. Yeah. He had never done anything that's before. Crazy. He didn't even look. I didn't play. I didn't play on the record. I didn't do anything but put my name on it. And now I'm touring with Prince, Rick James, and the rest of them off of a big record. There you go. What do they say? Shit happens. So it did happen. Well, he, he, as I, let's put it like this. He stepped in knee high. Dong. Gold. <laughs> I mean, that's like big time. You went from, I have not have a record out. I got a record out. It's top three in the country, in the North American area. Forget about what it probably did across the ocean. And he went from, wow, doing what he was doing to touring 52 cities, you know, whatever. 
on a off all from his all from his idea looking at the business papers to see that roller skates were being sold every month. That's what he started. That's that's what the whole thing was based off of. So I guess he had a knack for for, for a little bit of insight and a little bit of business acclimate. Not too much musicianship, but I guess you don't need that to have a hit record, as he proved. There's a lot of guys that that don't have the talent, say, quotations of talent, but with the right connections and knowing how to put assemble the right army together, the right people, they've proven massive success. Well, he was good at that. Yeah, he was he was good at that. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, it's well delegating. It's a well dele it's a of knowing how to delegate properly, you know? Concept man. Yeah. You know, good just for that. That's more or less how, how, how Puffy is. Puffy don't play nothing, but he says, look, do this, do that. I like this, I don't like that, and whatever. So he knew enough about it that he knew when he thought it was right. Even though he didn't know how to do it right, he knew when it sounded right. So I guess Vaughn was, was like that. But he was a great engineer, though. A great engineer, okay, and producer. So I guess, you know, hey, it is what it is. God rest his soul, you know what I mean? He helped me out. He showed me some life, and, and basically, I'm still here. I'm still thankful. And you're going to keep going. You're going to keep doing that stage work. You're going to keep making records, because if somebody like me or Byron call you and say, yo, man, we got this idea, You'll get that itch again. You'll jump right in. You'll do it again because that's how we all are. We love what we do. I still, I still do things like that. I still got a couple. I'm, I'm currently still writing a couple songs with, with Lee John and um, another singer called um, Juliet Roberts. Oh, I love yeah. Juliet. Oh, my God. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote a song with Juliet not too long ago. Um, she's about finished it, I guess, whatever. So I still do things, you know what I mean? But it's just not the same it doesn't give me the same feeling and the same drive because when you finish it and everything, then it's just like, it's just sort of there. Where back in the day, when you finished anything, the A&R wanted you to come in and play it for him, right? And then he would put on his twist. And then when you left there, you had a sense of that you had done something and, and, and that you were going to generate some type of, um, residuals. Where now they're like, yeah, I'll put it out for you and uh, I'm going to charge you 50% and uh, packaging and promotion and everything and, and you get a million hits on Spotify and there you go. $100 or whatever. So that's the difference. But you know what? The, the internet did that. You know, once the internet came and the record company shut down, they did that. And I mean, hey, everything changes. Nothing stays the same and you got to just roll with the punches the best you can. That's all I can say. You know what I mean? That's it. And that's all I can say too. You are the best and we can't thank you enough and giving us a lot of insight. Did we leave anything out? I think we covered pretty much everything, right? Well, I think we covered everything. Yeah. I mean, that I can think of. Um, yeah. You'll be writing your book someday. I know you're going to write a book. Well, no, I am. I'm, I'm going to start writing um, this in the beginning of the year because the first thing is to get the the content together first. That's the hardest part, to get the content together. So I'm going to do that. That's going to be my New Year's resolution because I, I want to tell my story. Everybody tells their story, don't they? So I haven't put in a lot of other things that, that, that I could say or whatever that, you know, you got to leave people something, you know. But, um, yeah, I got lots of stories to tell and people I've met and things I've been in and, and all of that. So... You know, God bless me with that. I'm still here. I just want to tell the story. So when I'm not here, because, you know, when you're not here, all kinds of stories and things do come out, right? And some of them are true and some of them are not. And things get sort of misconstrued sometimes, right? So if I tell my story now, like I've told it with you, and then I write my story out, okay, these are my words, here's the story, right? You know, I'd rather tell my story than to have someone else have to talk to a whole bunch of people to try to compile the story. It's not exactly the same, you know? I know, exactly. But you got to get it done before it gets too late in life. You don't want oh, That's why I said, you know, uh, it's, it's better now than never. 
And, um, you know, like, um, that's it. You know what I mean? That's it. I'm going to be starting on it in January to compile the stuff, you know? I'm just going to start from when I was, you know, four or five years old from, you know, from you can first remember and go all the way up. And then once you get it down, then you can see other things, you know, but I'm not going to write it. Down. I'm going to use one of those programs that puts it to text because you, I could be writing for like for a year when I can actually talk and it can go on to a text and then I can show it to someone and then they can then edit it down to what's good and whatever. Sure, of course, of course. And here's my aspiration for, for 2023 to at least do that. You know, not for any fame, not to go on the New York bestseller list, none of that, just to put the story out there so that basically this is the story coming from me. And it might be some other stories, but at least I've got my story coming from me. And not everyone is the reason why we do True House Stories, to get these stories documented. And this gentleman, Mr. Eric Dahl, I want to applaud you for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, it was like, I guess it was the universe. is here screaming. That was the universe. I saw you at the Ministry of Sound. Matter of fact, I want to come and check you out when you come back. I saw that um, you playing. I'll be in England. I'll be in England and New Year's and New Year's Day. So I want to come and check you out, definitely. We'll see. We'll see each other. Everybody's still here. Everybody's still breathing. There's more stories. We want to hear more. Check this man out. Stay in touch with him. Send him your messages. Get ready for his book. We don't know when it's going to drop, but we'll get there. And remember, have a lot of turkey, those Americans that are, are feasting. I, I, I do know what the book is going to be called, though. The book is going to be called Who is Eric Dial? All right. Watch that. Who is Eric Dial? And for me, I'm Lenny Fontana. Have a good night around the world. Happy holidays to all my American and North American friends. And those in England, I will see you soon. Stay with me, Eric, one more moment. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving.